I would hearken back to the Feast of Trumpets uh, a few days ago, where we went through to show that Pentecost indeed is a beginning. It is not a completion. Uh, it is not the resurrection of the dead or the first fruits. It is the conception, the beginning. Uh, that is when the Holy Spirit first came and we were conceived, or they were in that early New Testament church, as the beginning of a new start, a new creation, a new covenant. That was the beginning of it, not the completion of it. It has been taught that uh, Christ will return on the day of Pentecost, and that is when the first fruits are resurrected. But that is not the record, and it does not fit the context of Acts 2. It does not fit Leviticus 23. It simply cannot be when you don't do violence to the context of what is there. Fruit needs time to grow. And if something starts, a seed is planted uh, with baptism, and putting the Pentecost as the, as the resurrection does violence to the analogy which God makes of a babe being, well, a death at baptism, and then with the giving of the Holy Spirit, with the laying on of hands, a new life begins. That life has to grow through a period of nine months in the analogy of a, of a family until it is mature enough to be born in a different state without the protection of the womb, but to be a human being on its own. And that is the analogy that is used throughout the Bible, and it is the one that fits the analogy of the fruits as well. Christ was the first planted, and he grew uh, through the time he was here and became the first of the first fruits at the time that he was resurrected. And he instructed those disciples to then stay there, for 50 days, they were not converted. They knew nothing. Uh, it is not time to be resurrected to life when you are new and know nothing are not, and are not yet converted. And Christ told Peter, when you are converted, then help your brethren. He was not at that point converted. He was in no way ready to be resurrected. So the meaning of Pentecost in Acts 2 has to be that that was a beginning. It was when the Holy Spirit was sent, the conception occurred, and then a period of growth has to ensue. So a tree buds in the spring, and then you have a long hot summer in which the fruit has to grow. Uh, it cannot, through that summer, uh, be cast off. The tree doesn't get enough water. It doesn't get enough fertilizer. It does. The birds come and peck the fruit and so on. Many things can happen during a period of time from the time that fruit begins to grow from that bloom, from that blossom. And Pentecost was indeed a time when a blossom was formed. A new beginning occurred. Thousands were converted. They were not ready for the kingdom of God. They had to grow, and the analogy that the Jews have always used about the wedding was that Christ was to go, and, or the, the bridegroom was to go and prepare a place for his bride, and he said, I will 
send the Comforter to be with you during this period of time while I go to my Father's house to build you mansions or rooms or positions. And when I return, then you will receive those. So, He is there now, has been through the long hot summer, as the Holy Day cycle shows, preparing. And the bride is supposed to be here preparing herself to get herself ready for His return. So, in the Jewish wedding story, when he returned, he took his bride to be his wife at that time after she had made herself ready. If the first resurrection occurs on Pentecost, she has no room to make herself ready. Uh, To use that wedding analogy, to use the fruit analogy, the fruit has no time to grow. And the analogy of birth, the child has no opportunity to grow and be ready to be born. So, Pentecost is a beginning. It is the start of something. It was the start of the new covenant, the start of a new period of growth where it is actually possible and to qualify for the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit was given as a comforter to comfort while he was gone. And when he returns, after she has made herself ready, then she's prepared to be a bride. So, The reasoning about Pentecost being the first resurrection simply doesn't fit, and I won't go back through everything we went through on trumpets to show that. But let's go to Leviticus 23. Briefly then, the review here that the blowing of trumpets was a special blowing in verse 24 of Leviticus 23. Trumpets were blown on all the holy days and all the new moons and all important times and to gather the people. Trumpets were very, very important in Israel. So someone can say, well, they blew trumpets on all the holy days, so what does that have to do with the Feast of Trumpets? Well, this was a special, a memorial of blowing of trumpets for a very important reason. Yes, they had trumpets to assemble the people and to blow them on all the holy days. They had Uh, sacrifices on all the holy days. But you have a lot of explanation about Pentecost and what it means and how it was a beginning in the baked loaves from Old and New Testament or possibly from the early New Testament church and the end time is a possibility as well. But the only thing it says about trumpets is it is a memorial of blowing of trumpets. So that is the central and key thing to do with the trumpets. And we know that Christ is returning at the last trump, when the seventh trumpet sounds. So, that is the great trumpet. And the great trumpet is mentioned two or three places. I won't review all that. Because the great trumpet is the one that sounds His return. And that is a memorial of the blowing of trumpets. Now, the one who preached these things preaches also that the uh, fall holy days only have to do with the uh, people in the second resurrection and so on. They have nothing to do with us. And I don't buy that for one second because the story has to continue here. Let's go on down then with that background a little bit and examine the Day of Atonement. Now, notice... There is a great deal to say about the Day of Atonement, just as there was Pentecost. Uh, Trumpets, 
didn't say much about. It is a singular event. It is the blowing of that trumpet and the resurrection of the dead to rise and meet Christ. I say the dead, the 144,000, and that's all. Because they are the first fruits, Revelation 14, 4. The 144,000 are the first fruits. Nothing more and nothing less. It is just a plain, simple statement. So, verse 27, Also on the tenth day of this seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be an holy convocation to you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Eternal. And you shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Eternal, your God. An atonement is something that removes that which divides, confuses, makes it totally at one. And we've used that word, breaking it down in the past, and I think it certainly fits, at one mint. You become at one with. Now, what cuts us off from God? Sin. So, for us to become at one with Christ, we have to be completely free of sin. Now, let's not confuse Passover and atonement. Christ died at Passover to make forgiveness, to wash away our sins in His blood. So He is the one who sacrificed Himself for our sins. And that makes it possible then for us to, be, to become one with Him and His Father, right? And with each other. It makes it possible through the forgiveness of sin. But then you have immediately thereafter, and during that time, actually the seven days, of putting sin out of life. So the Passover is the singular event that makes it possible for sin to go away. But you have a period of time then when you work at putting sin out. Because even though he made it possible, it didn't just go away, have you noticed? Sin so easily besets us to this day. And if we continue in sin or continue to sin, then we will not have our sins all washed away, but we will die for those sins because we do not bring them under the blood of Christ. So, the analogy is very similar in that sense as the story begins to develop between Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets. They failed to put sin out. They sought a different lover, Satan, and had to be divorced from in the Old Testament. So a new covenant had to be given. And that covenant had greater promise, but it also had greater gifts with it, the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that we, we might have the opportunity and the capacity to begin to truly grow and put sin away and to become more like Christ, to walk as He walked, to think as He thought, to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. And that is a struggle that we continue with to this day, even as Christ sacrificed Himself, and yet we still have to put sin out, 
Even though we receive the Holy Spirit, we have to go through a period of time where we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and where we become more like Him and we have the comfort and the strength of His Spirit, His power, to help us do it. So there's nothing complete at Passover or at Pentecost. They signified a beginning. Here is an opportunity. I will take your sin. Now you put sin out. Then Pentecost comes. They didn't do it very well, so they received extra help. And Christ lived a perfect life and became the first of the first fruits to show that it can be done. It can be done. And through Him, you and I can also be there. But it is not something that has been accomplished. The Day of Atonement is a day that we afflict our souls so that we can become more at one with Him. Now, He's already said, I'll wash your sin away. But we continue to sin until when? Until our change come. Feast of Trumpets. When we are, this mortal puts on immortality and we no longer sin at all. Now, kind begets kind. Christ will marry a bride of the same kind He is. He cannot marry us as human beings. Now, in the Old Testament it was done in a, an analogy way. But for the actual marriage of the Lamb, which that marriage in the Old Testament and this pending marriage that we're looking to today, in the analogy, the time comes when it becomes an actuality, not an analogy. So when it comes to the actual marriage of the Lamb, He can only marry His own kind. Nothing less will do. So, when the Feast of Trumpets comes, we are changed, we become God, and then we are the same kind as Him. Then, He is free to marry us. And what does marriage do? We've always used the terminology about marriage that you become at one. Christ, our God, told us, or Genesis says that they were to become one flesh, Adam and Eve. They weren't to be two anymore in that sense. Yes, they're still separate human beings, but they too would become, or the twain would become one. So God Himself uses that analogy. Now, when Christ marries His bride is the day they become at one in every way. They consummate the marriage. It's a done deal. It's finished at that point. It can't happen at Pentecost. The bride has just been given the Spirit and has not grown and prepared herself and made herself ready. That's only the beginning of the new covenant. The end of the new covenant is on the day of atonement. That is the day when the bride has made herself ready She has been changed into the same kind as God, as Christ, her husband. And then she can become at one with Him. At one meant. Now, fasting 
is for the purpose of what? Humbling ourselves? Making ourselves ready? Getting prepared to be at one with Him. Now, He's not going to marry a sinful woman. He's going to marry a perfect woman. So she has to be changed and then become at one at the wedding supper. So it's a day to afflict yourself. And if you don't do that, if you do any work on that day, you'll be cut off from among the people. Now, when it came to the marriage, what does Deuteronomy 24, 5 tell us? It says that when a man got married, he was not to go to war for one year, he was not to work for one year, but he was to cheer up his wife. Now, why is it that on the Day of Atonement, specifically, there is to be no work of any kind done. Now, you could prepare food on the other holy days, but this is a day of no work. Because when Christ marries His bride on the Day of Atonement, He will not then work for a year. He will not go to war for a year. He will marry His bride and cheer her up and give her gifts and love and everything she needs and wants for a full year before he returns to this earth and his saints with him, with his vesture dipped in blood at the end of the seven last plagues to take over the earth. He doesn't conquer the earth when he comes. We rise to meet him in the air. We go back and are married on the Day of Atonement. We have one year with him while the Day of the Lord occurs. Matthew 24, it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, he will return. It says the two witnesses lie there for three and a half days, and they're resurrected at the end of the time, and that's the time he returns. Feast of trumpets. The trumpet, the great trumpet, will sound at that time. So she will rise and meet him in the air and go to the Father's throne, and they will be married and have a year-long honeymoon. This is a wonderful picture of today. Then it goes on down here and talks about the work and on and on about it. Now let's go to Leviticus 16. I'm not going to go through all of this today. But this was the time when Aaron was to go in to the Holy of Holies. And it goes through and shows how he had to have the holy linen cloth, uh, coat, the linen breeches, how he had to be attired in holy garments. This was a very important time. And this, as we'll see at the bottom, was done on the Day of Atonement, this day in history. Now, why is it tied together with atonement? Because it was the most sacred, the most holy day of the year. It was the day that they got the very closest to the Father and the Son on that day. At one meant. Complete and total atonement has been made. Now there is nothing to separate us. No sin, no iniquity, 
No shadow of turning, no spot, no nothing. So much to do was made of the high priest having to go in absolutely clean and pure on that day. Because we have to be presented to Christ as his bride with holy garments. No spot, no wrinkle. Ephesians 5 says that's the way he will present his bride to himself. No spot, no wrinkle. Completely atoned. No uncleanness of any kind. That's not going to happen with you and me until the day we're changed. So, atonement and becoming at one with him can only happen once those conditions have been met. That's why this day is talked about in such great detail in both Leviticus 23 and here in Leviticus 16. Now, for the, the other thing that has to happen in order for us to be with him and at one with no static in the air, no problems, no sins, no difficulties, is we have had a problem. It's the same problem ancient Israel had. They went after another lover. They went after Satan's system, the prince of the power of the air and the present ruler of this world. And all kinds of idolatry occurred. That led to divorce. Now, there was a certain oneness between Christ and Israel in the Old Testament, right? But Israel did not keep her half that covenant, so it never could work. And Satan ultimately is the one responsible for leading them away. Now, why is it that this scapegoat or Azazel story (coughs) is here in regards to the Day of Atonement? Because Satan has been our lover. He's been the one who has run this culture, this society, and everything in it. And he has to be put away for us to ever become truly at one with our husband-to-be. You can't keep a picture of an old lover in your wallet. An ex-husband or wife. That has to be expunged, completely gone, for us to marry Christ. Now, Satan is still here. He is still, every day of our lives, trying to pull us away from our Savior, our Redeemer, our Mediator, and our husband-to-be. So, this thing was done, where two live goats were presented. And one became, was killed and became the sin offering. Christ died so that our sins might be washed away. (coughs) However, Satan did not die in that story, or this story here in Leviticus 16. I'm not going to go through and read it all for sake of time. We know the story. But he was had the sins conferred over him and was turned loose in the wilderness. Just as we know that Satan will be bound a thousand years and sent into the wilderness, into the darkness and the blackness, and chained for a thousand years. He won't die, and then he'll be released for a short time to deceive the nations. But for us to be married to Christ, to become truly at one with him, 
We cannot have any influence of Satan around. And that is why this story fits the Day of Atonement so perfectly. The only one fit to bind Satan in the wilderness is Christ himself who defeated him when Christ tempted him after his 40 days of fasting. He qualified to take over the rulership of the world, but he has not yet done it. Satan is still in charge and in power. And that will be seen very dramatically shortly. But Michael cannot take Satan into the wilderness. They are created beings of equal power. Gabriel cannot. There were three of those archangels. I remember when poor Daniel was fasting and wanting an answer from God, and it took 21 days for Michael to get there, and he says, the prince of Persia withstood me, or Satan, who was the prince of the kingdoms of this world, Persia being the predominant one at the time. So until Gabriel came and helped him, he couldn't even get to poor Daniel. It took 21 days. Now Christ has greater power then than Satan the devil. And he is the one, only one, fit to take the devil and bind him a thousand years. Then he can marry his bride. So the morning of the day that this day pictures, Satan will be bound so that Christ can marry his wife, his bride, with absolutely no problem. They can be totally at one without Satan to tempt, without wrong thoughts, but a perfect coming together as one. The Day of Atonement pictures so much in our lives. Now, people have gotten confused here where it says that that goat will bear our iniquities. Now, Christ's blood washes our iniquities away. But Satan bears the blame for our sins. Who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden? Satan the devil. He is the one who led them astray from God and destroyed the relationship that man had with God. And it has been a broken relationship ever since. So does he have the guilt Yes, he does. Now, we bear our own guilt because we give in to his thinking and his system. But he is the one who has built this culture and society around us of sin and being apart from our father and his son. He is the one who keeps us away. So, that guilt is conferred upon him. And it was done on the seventh day, tenth, or tenth day of the seventh month. And he reiterates down in verse 29 that we are to afflict our souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. So, none at all. Picturing that time when Christ will not work. Now, he says, I work and my father work, right? He was here to do the work of his father, and he did it, and he worked hard at it. He didn't take vacations. Well, he went up to pray, but that was part of the work, was to stay close to his father so that he wouldn't sin. 
And he's been working ever since in our behalf as our mediator and high priest, forgiving, loving, healing, helping us, is what he has been doing. But then when we are changed and we become God and we have no sin, we will no longer need mediation. We will no longer need a high priest. We will no longer need a savior. We'll have been saved. Those titles for us will become vacant. Now, he will still need those with those who survived the millennium and the great white throne judgment and so on. He will still always have those titles. But they will have been fulfilled for us. Why do you need a Savior when you're saved? Once you have gone through everything we are going through and succeeded and are changed into spirit, now you only need one thing. A husband. And you will be totally, at that point, at that marriage, at one with Christ. That marriage will take place at the throne of the Father in heaven on the sea of glass with the Father performing the ceremony. And the bride, the first fruits, 144,000. A perfect symmetrical number there on the sea of glass to be married to Christ. And Satan, the ex-husband, the ex-lover, the ex-boyfriend, whatever you want to say, <clears throat> will be gone. Now let's go on down, verse 31. It shall be a day, Sabbath of rest to you, and you shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint, and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement, and shall put on the linen clothes and the holy garments." The analogy is perfect here for us and our wedding garments, the holy white linen that is the attire of the bride. It just goes on and on about it. And this shall be an everlasting statute to you, in verse 34, to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the eternal commanded Moses. So this is to be done every year on this very day that we are celebrating today by afflicting our souls, by not working, by trying to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. We have nothing else to do but to dwell on what He has done for us, what He is about to do for us, and the marriage that is to come, the marriage of the Lamb. The bride is to be here making herself ready. Now let's go to uh, John 2. This one came into perspective once I understood what the Day of Atonement really is. And I've mentioned this before. This is the marriage in Cana of Galilee where they ran out of wine and Christ was there and made wine. Now, wouldn't you think that if the Savior of the world, that Yeshua the Christ Himself, was here on the earth, and He were going to start doing miracles, wouldn't it be logical and normal thinking for Him to heal the sick, raise the dead, 
to do something powerful that would truly help someone in a physical, spiritual way. Many of the miracles that he did while he was here had to do with casting out demons, with healing, with resurrections, with that type of thing. Well, why not the first? Why would the first miracle be such a mundane thing as providing more wine? Isn't that a little strange to a normal thought pattern? It always puzzled me a bit. Why was wine so important? Well, what did he tell the disciples? I will no more drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. The reason he made wine first was because the marriage of the Lamb is the most important thing that is to be and is to come. That is what all of history is pointing to when the first of the first fruits is combined with the rest of the first fruits and the mystery of God is finished. Pentecost does not finish the mystery of God. It is the beginning of a mystery of God where a seed is planted and has to grow until fruit is produced, a baby is born, or a spirit being is a human is changed into a spirit being. Pentecost is a beginning, a seed planted. Trumpets and atonement is the ripening, the fruition, the marriage of the Lamb. She is changed to be of like kind, and then the marriage occurs. So it is of paramount importance that he produced wine in his first miracle at a wedding. It only makes sense that his whole tenure on this earth was to redirect human beings toward his father and toward himself as the one to marry her by beginning a New Testament church. So, the healing of an individual was not nearly so important as the meaning of wine at a wedding feast. And he made it very clear to his disciples, I will not do this again until I do it anew with you in my kingdom. So, when we enter that kingdom and go to the wedding feast, there will be food and there will be wine. And Christ will have his first glass of wine that he has had since he took that wine with the disciples on the night he was to die. So that wine is very heavily symbolic. The wine of his blood shed for us to make this possibility of life ever after. And then it is not partaken of again by him until that day when fruition occurs. When the mystery of God is finished. That human beings can be changed into spirit and then marry the Lamb. Now, he's allowed us to drink wine in the meantime. And he's allowed us to take it once a year at Passover 
in memorial of that, but he himself will not do it until he drinks it new with us. Isn't that special? Think about that for a moment. That should be inspiring. From this moment, I will not have another glass until I have one with you. My first miracle was creating wine. And look at the rich symbolism that it has in his relationship with us. From the beginning of the New Testament church until the bride becomes totally at one with him. Mazel tov. I want to throw in another thought here, and that is in Mark 2, 19 to 20, because they were questioning him there. I'm not going to go there. You know the scripture when I get into it. About uh, fasting. And he said that he would not, that his disciples now fast because he was going away. And when he returns, they won't fast anymore. That's like it is in the fast of Zechariah. It says they'll be turned into feasts of joy, right? When all those bad things that happened on those four fast days that we keep through the year, the answer to those is going to come. They will no longer be a problem. Jerusalem will be restored. There's no reason to fast over destruction because the destruction will be fixed. And we fast now on this day of atonement because we are not at one with Him totally in thought, in spirit, in body, or in any other way. We're not completely at one with Him. But it pictures a day when we will be. And He's not here. The bridegroom is gone. He's off to His Father's throne in heaven preparing a place for us. He's getting Himself ready for the wedding and preparing a place for us. A new Jerusalem. A new habitation. So we fast because He's not here. But the day of the wedding? Why do you need to fast then? Well, your spirit being, it won't matter. You you won't feel lightheaded and weak and dry-mouthed because you'll be spirit. But the meaning is so great that that will be the wedding feast and we'll have a drink with him on this day. He will be with us then forevermore and we shall ever be with him and we will go everywhere he goes as Jude and Revelation show. Never depart from him again. Always be with him. So when he comes and we rise to meet him in the air and we go back to his father's throne and are married and stay there for a year while the seven last plagues in the day of the Lord go on down here on this earth, he will not work, but we will feast. We will have wine with him. We will learn our new jobs. We will know how to be a bride. We'll be cheered up and ready. And then when he returns to take over and to set up his kingdom, we will be with him always. Because His coming then is different than it is today. Let's go to the book of Revelation and see that. Uh, Before we go there, uh, remember the story of the two virgins, the ten virgins, excuse me, there in Matthew 25. He goes away, right? And then they're here. They all slumber and sleep. 
They're waiting for him to return so that the wedding can occur. And he uses the the analogy of the bridegroom and the virgins to marry. And we are looked upon as those virgins. Remember that Paul said he would present the Corinthians as chaste virgins to Christ. Now, Paul had his work cut out for him, did he not? They were a very amoral society, immoral society. They had every problem you can name. And yet, those people who were very, very sinful were going to be cleansed, made whole, made pure, and spiritually speaking, become virgins. So he uses the virgin story here in Matthew 25. They all went to sleep at the switch. And then the cry came, He's returning. Then they who were ready went in. We are here to make ourselves ready while He is gone. The proposal has been made. A gift of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, was given at Pentecost. And now we are to take heart with that gift... And we were, are to use it to prepare ourselves to be ready to marry Him right after He returns. Trumpets is followed very quickly by atonement. The final preparation of the bride comes at the resurrection of the dead. A change. A permanent change. But we're here getting ourselves ready. And the whole church went to sleep. Lukewarm, lackadaisical, tired, snoring away. A cry has been made. The church has been blown apart. It's in a shambles. Now it's time to be check our lamps and to see if we're anywhere near ready. <clears throat> That's what this period of time is for. It's not to be out preaching the gospel to the world when we have just been spewed out of the mouth of the Father, or Christ, or both, actually. When you've just been spewed out of His mouth, it's time to look around and say, what do I need to fix? What needs to be changed here? Do I have oil in my lamp or not? Here I am, just a piece of spit on the ground. Now is the time to make the changes, to prepare ourselves. So that when that great trumpet sounds, we will be selected to rise off the earth as part of the 144,000. It's real easy to make a cop out on the innumerable multitude there, but it can be proved, and I did in that series on how exclusive is the church, that the innumerable multitude comes later. The 144,000 are the totality of the first resurrection. They are the first fruits. Again, Revelation 14.4. We'll see that again here in just a moment. But I was headed back to uh, the book of Revelation. I think that's all I wanted to pick up before I go here. Let's go back to Revelation 19. Now, all these horrific things that are beginning to break forth around the globe are going to get worse and worse and worse. 
and then things are going to begin to change. Verse chapter 19, After these things that I just spoke of, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven say, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and has avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. So here's the story of how Satan has created this horrible culture here on the earth, and Christ is qualified to take over. Fits the fit man of Leviticus 16 perfectly. And again they said, Hallelujah, and her smoke rose up forever. She's never going to show up again. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and you that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. So the ten virgins are told to get ready. And here, when you reach the consummation, the actual occurrence, the time of the marriage, she will have made herself ready. She will have white garments. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So Aaron having to go through all the cleansing and washing and putting on the holy linen garments and so on that he did on the Day of Atonement was all pointing to this Day of Atonement pictured here when the bride has made herself ready and she's granted to be totally righteous, pure, clean, and white. That can only come after the first resurrection. Because none of us will attain to that before then. Paul, Peter, James, John, none of them did that. But it will be granted through a change that the desire to sin, the temptation to sin, will be taken away. I cannot even imagine that. We are so beset with all kinds of fleshly human desires of every kind and stripe imaginable. Whether laziness or outright sin or not caring or, you know, attitudes, actual sins, wrong thoughts, selfishness, we are so beset with those. Pride, vanity, ego, you know, it just, the list goes on and on of things that are us. We were made with that capacity. And mankind gave in in the Garden of Eden. And as an Adam, we all die for these sins. But it will be granted that our nature will be changed. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will not be like we were anymore. I know that is too big for us to grasp. 
because we don't know how to think without selfishness and greed and envy and jealousy and all those things. It's just part of us. The pulls that we have mostly are down, are they not? Your nature does not automatically want to do everything right and in the right way and never say anything bad. That's not the way we're wired. We're wired with downward pulls in every part of our personalities. And we have to fight to be positive. We have to fight to be inspired. We have to fight to pray. We have to fight to study. We have to fight to be nice to each other. We have to fight to do that which is good, in short. Christ came and fought the good fight. He had every down, downward pull that you and I have. He was tempted in all points, like as we are. He was made human. And His nature was pulling Him the same direction it's pulling you and me every day that He breathed air on this earth. And if you don't believe that, then you don't believe God's Word. Well, that was Jesus. He couldn't have had those pulls and those thoughts. Yes, He did. He just resisted them and did not let them conceive and bring forth sin. But the pull, the desire to be selfish, to be greedy, to be jealous, to sin in every imaginable way, haunted him daily. He had to go to his father and pray for strength daily in order not to become like you and me, a sinner. And he never once gave in. But he fought every day. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Well, he had to come and be like we are and succeed in order to pave the way for us to be there. Now, he no longer has those desires or those pulls. He's not human anymore. He still has emotions, but they are uplifting emotions. They are, he is full of love and joy and peace, happiness, long-suffering and patience, and all the fruits of the Spirit is what he is full of. And the works of the flesh are no longer a problem. Now, that is the day we look forward to on trumpets, when we are absolutely changed, not just our body to spirit, but our minds from carnal, physical, to spirit minds that are only continually upward in their emotions, their thoughts, and their feelings. We have never experienced anything like that. Maybe in moments of true closeness to our Father and His Son, deep in prayer, motivated by His Spirit, we might at times have a little bit of an inkling of what it would be to be truly inspired and uplifted and not having anything against anybody or trying to put ourselves above anyone else and all these things that are so human. We might get a little glimpse of it now and then. 
but it's fleeting. We cannot even imagine the things that he has in store for us. He's told us that. I can be very inspired at times with the creation around me. I think you can. Beautiful thundering waterfall in the mountains. And you can be inspired. And you can sit there and you might not be thinking anything bad. You can just be inspired by what God has done. And those can be very uplifting moments. Think of that as being continual and even better than that. And you get just a tiniest fragment of understanding of what God is and what He can be. Making herself ready takes work. I work and my Father works. And he said to me, verse 9, Write, Blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. So when he returns, the wife will have made herself ready. All these horrible things we've been reading about in chapter 18 and back will essentially have transpired except for the seven last plagues, which will be unleashed immediately after the tribulation of those days when he returns. Because those seven last plagues go throughout that year when we are with our husband being cheered up. will not be on this earth. Let's go on down. I fell at his feet to worship him, verse 10, and he said to me, See you do it not, I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren that have the testimony of Yahshua, or Emmanuel, worship God for the testimony of Emmanuel, and it can truly be used in that sense then. Emmanuel means God with us. And here he's speaking of becoming or coming to his bride and taking her with him to his father's throne. And then will the prophecy ultimately totally be fulfilled, God with us. So Emmanuel could fit very well here as the prophecy of Isaiah 7. Worship God, for the testimony of Emmanuel is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. So he comes, he marries the bride, he has his honeymoon, and then he is going to come down and finish the job. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. What is the white and clean linen? The garments of the bride. She comes back with him to do the final put-down of the rebellion. And, he's, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of, of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. 
And then he is, his name at that time will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now let's see, he binds the devil in chapter 20, lays hold on that old serpent, the fit man, the one that can do it, and binds him a thousand years. Then it talks about the different resurrections. But let's go to chapter 21. <clears throat> and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now, this doesn't mean that the earth is all burned up and becomes ashes. Isaiah 24, where this is quoted, does not say that, nor does it say that in Peter, which is quoted from Isaiah 24. Few men left. He is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to restore that which has been polluted. We don't go, have time to go into all of that. But there was no more sea. doesn't mean there wasn't any more water. You go to Ezekiel, and it shows that the sea, or the salt, becomes fresh. So that which makes water or people unfit to drink or to be around is changed to fresh. Ezekiel explains that. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So, when Christ returns in glory with his bride, she is typical of the city, which we shall see. This New Jerusalem, this city, is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So when Christ comes down with the new heaven and the new earth, and his Father with him, as we'll see, they'll reign on the earth a thousand years, and this will be headquarters of the universe from there on. I heard a great voice saying, uh, and it'll be their God, and he'll wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, <coughs> for the former things are passed away. When will all our tears dry up? When will our pain go away? <clears throat> My throat's getting dry enough. Automatically reach for that glass of water under the podium and it's empty. It's gone. So if you think you're dry, I'm getting drier up here yakking away. Our tears will go away when we're changed. Now, during the millennium, there'll still be human beings, and there'll still be tears, and there'll still be death, as Isaiah 65 clearly points out. All flesh will be coming to worship before Him at that time. So, this is not speaking of a time when the earth is after the great white throne judgment. We, we truly blew Isaiah 65 and used it for doctrine that just simply does not fit. I'm going to go back there just for a moment. Isaiah 65, here it's speaking, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Now, in worldwide, all those years, we were taught that there'll be the millennium, then there'll be the great white throne judgment, and then the earth will be burned up into ashes and a cinder, and He'll create a new heaven and a new earth, and that He and the Father will then come down and rule at that time. 
But that does violence to Isaiah 65 and 66. We bought into Ellen G. White's Isaiah 24 prophecy, and she declared there that the earth would be desolate and burned up, and she left out key phrases like, and few men left. And the church swallowed that and thought that everything was going to be burned up. Now, notice the context here is the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 17, very clearly, nothing else. But be you glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. Now let's go down. Uh, verse 20, there shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old. This is the new heavens and new earth and you have children dying. The sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. And the sinner is cursed by dying. Everybody in the millennium is not going to make it as a spirit being, nor in the great white throne judgment. We know Satan will deceive the nations at the end of the thousand years when he's turned loose for a short season. Still people, still people not making it. And they, these old men and these children, people, they shall build homes and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. This is in the new heavens and new earth. He's describing the new heavens and new earth here, okay? They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And they shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the eternal, and their offspring with them. Children being born and living a hundred years. Children being born here. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Eternal. These people are alive during the new heavens and the new earth. Go down to verse 22 of chapter 66. For is the new heavens and the new earth which I will make. So here again he's describing the new heavens and the new earth, okay? Which I will make shall remain before me, says the Eternal, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass, when? During the new heavens and the new earth. That from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Eternal. There will be people and flesh in the new heavens and new earth. We didn't read it all. The new heavens and the new earth come down with Christ and His bride. That's what's being described here in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, during the new heaven and new earth, before we lose that thought, go down to the end of chapter 21. This is a time now 
Verse 22, I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. The Father and the Son will both be here during the new heavens and new earth, which is introduced here in the beginning of verse chapter 21. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor to it. So there's still kings walking about the earth. Are they spirit? Is this after the earth, as we believed before, is all burned up after the great white throne judgment? No. The gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations to it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there are going to be people around, but they will not be allowed inside. Only the bride of the Lamb, the Father, the Son, and the holy angels, and so on. And he showed me, now the new heavens and new earth are here, right? And he showed me a pure river of water, of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And this was for what? Trees providing life for the cleansing and healing of the nations. And no more curse. In other words, the new heavens and new earth will be here. The Father and the Son and the Bride will be ruling. And no one who is still a sinner will be allowed in. And out from under the throne in the new heavens and new earth will come waters that heal the nations. So everything will not have been healed. It will not have been fixed when the new heavens and new earth are here. It's an ongoing process that happens during the millennium where the earth is healed and the nations are healed and the people are healed. Now let's go on down here in Revelation 21 where we were, but I wanted to make that point. He that sat upon the throne, verse 5, said, Behold, I make all things new. That doesn't mean that he has to absolutely destroy every molecule and atom of what has been. He refurbishes, he rebuilds, he fixes, he restores. These words are true and faithful. He said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Well, now, if we've already been changed into spirit, we will not be athirst anymore, will we? Our tears will have already been dried. We will have no need. But there are those who will still be human, as we saw in Isaiah 65 and 66, who will still be thirsty. And they can come and drink of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now he's going to show us some more. Verse 9, And there came to me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. So, this is something that is closely related and correlated together here. One of the angels 
who had had one of the vials of the seven last plagues is used here for another purpose. But the timing is this. Feast of Trumpets, resurrection of the first fruits, Atonement, marriage, and atonement of the Lamb with His bride. Then He comes back after a year's honeymoon with her, while the seven last plagues are being poured out, and one of those angels that had one of those vials is still there, and He comes to describe to John in this vision what is next. Right after the seven last plagues, long before the great white throne judgment, he points out what? He talked with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. So immediately after the seven last plagues, he shows the lamb's wife. And she is where? She's with him. Because Jude and Peter and other places show that she is ever with him and always be with him. <clears throat> so, he said, I'll show you the wife. Well, did he see a girl? Did he see 144,000 people? What did he see? He carried me away into the Spirit, in the Spirit, to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. I'm going to show you the wife, and then he shows him the new Jerusalem. Having the glory of God. We are going to have the glory of God. And her light, her, the bride, the city, both in the same analogy, as a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, had the twelve gates, twelve tribes, twelve apostles over the twelve tribes, and so on. And it was, pick up the measurements, 12,004 uh, four square, uh, 12,000 furlongs, and so on. And he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man. So the first fruits are what? 144,000. 12,000 times 12. 12,000 in each tribe, spiritually speaking. He will place us in what tribe He wants us, spiritually. It will not be 12,000 who were at one time Gadites or Asherites or Manassites in that tribe. He puts us in the tribe He wants us in. Remember the 12 apostles? Many of them were brothers. So they did not represent all 12 tribes. But the head of the 12 the twelve tribes in this city will be the twelve apostles. So God places us in a tribe wherever He wants us. There are many who will be, in the, who will be first fruits who were not blood Israelites, who were Gentiles that were grafted in. So they have to be placed within a tribe. They become spiritually Manassites or Ephraimites or Gadites or whatever. Because God can make that call and make that transition. So, the numbers of the holy city match what? The 144,000, the bride, the first fruits, perfectly. And then it goes on to the part we've already read about how 
the Father and the Son will be the rulers and we there with them if we're part of the first fruits. And no one who is unholy then can come in. But they'll still be on the earth, beginning of the millennium. They'll still be having children, building houses. They'll be coming before the throne on holy days and Sabbaths and new moons. And all flesh will come and worship. So the new heavens and the new earth are here at the beginning of the millennium, right after the seven last plagues when He comes to rule the earth with a rod of iron, Father and Son together with the bride. That's what the Scriptures say. It isn't what we've believed in worldwide all those years, but it's what fits. And we overlooked a lot of things that we just simply did not see. Anyway, uh, that's the story. Let's go down to chapter 22 and finish it up here. Because it's giving a final warning here about sins of all kinds. Chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life. If we will now obey the commandments of God, now this is after Paul wrote all he wrote and everybody wrote everything they wrote, and the final, last word of advice from John the Apostle, who received it directly from Christ and wrote it down, is that if you want to be in the kingdom of God and partake of the tree of life, which that represents, you have to keep the commandments. And may enter in through the gates into the city. So if we keep the commandments, we're given the tree of life, we become immortal spirit beings married to Christ as part of the 144,000, we can enter the city. But outside the city, this is in the new heavens and new earth, this whole context. Outside the city are dogs, sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loves and makes a lie. I, Emmanuel, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that hears say, Come. Let him that is a thirst come, and whoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So when the new heavens and the new earth are here, the Father, the Son, and the Bride are ruling in the city of Jerusalem, the new city the new heavens and the new earth, and they extend a hand of welcome to any who might want to come and partake of the waters of life, those who are still thirsty. So this is not speaking of a time supposedly after the great white throne judgment when everything has been burned up and only that which is spiritual remains as we taught it. It isn't that way in the Scripture. Here it shows the Spirit of God and the Bride offering salvation. We will be here to rule with Christ a thousand years 
and offer salvation to those who are alive and remain and who are building houses, inhabiting them, and having children, as Isaiah 65 clearly shows. And when the great white throne judgment comes, the second resurrection, we will be there again to offer life because the tree of life, the trees that are outside and coming from under the throne, will still offer healing and life to the people who are there then. To do it the way, or to believe it the way we did in Worldwide all those years, removes the opportunity for us to be there to offer salvation with Christ, our husband, to the world. So this day pictures the putting away of our former boyfriend, of becoming perfect and changed, having grown, made ourselves ready, changed at a moment in the twinkling of an eye at trumpets, and then marrying Christ, honeymooning for a year, and then coming down with Him to take charge to set up the kingdom of God with the Father and the Son and the Holy City and rule the earth and offer salvation to mankind. That's the way it's laid out in Scripture.